beloved brothers and sisters, I would ask you to turn your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be looking today, we just pray that the Lord would deliver us from the evil one and from the evil works. We're going to be looking today back to the time before the fall, before the curse, and considering the good creational reality that the Lord our God made and to which we ourselves are called and restored in Jesus Christ, who is that second Adam. Scripture tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Brethren, for you and I who are in Christ, we have in fact been restored. We are being restored. Our title as priestly kings, our access to God has been restored We have Jesus, that second Adam, dwelling in us now to draw us near. For us who are in Christ, the way into the Holy of Holies, into the throne of God, into the tree of life is no longer guarded by angels with flaming swords, but the way has been thrown wide open for us to come and abide in Jesus, that tree of life, and to come and walk again in the presence of the living God in in his garden day by day. We've already read the text. I'm not going to read it again from the Old Testament. I'll I'll just start as we consider. We'll be looking at Genesis 1, 26 uh, to 28 uh, and following, and then at uh, chapter 2, verse 15, primarily today. But as as we consider and we're moving through um, our, our look these past several weeks and in the coming weeks at our mission statement, as a church, what, the thing to which we believe that Jesus has called his church universally uh, and therefore us as part of that to be, we're at that place where we've considered that resurrection church exists to worship and glorify the living triune God. And the first key way that we see that done is by exercising as those that bear his image, godly dominion in the earth in his name. This is something which is very fundamental to our call. You know, when I was growing up, some of you probably had this experience. You know, I grew up broadly in in a church context in which, um, you know, we were exhorted. And and I responded in faith when I was a child, you know, to uh, come. Now, uh, the context in which I was, you know, we always always walked an aisle. And you walked up and met the pastor up front. but uh, the point is, was to give yourself to the Lord. And, and I want to be very clear that even we who believe in uh, we are covenantal, the conscious choice and faith to uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to visualize, verbalize that commitment is still vitally important. Brethren, we believe that you must be born again. We yearn for our children. We don't ask everybody to come to an altar call or anything down here, but it is imperative that you as parents, that you be looking for encouraging, or you say, you know, as your children get older, to see expressions of them saying, yes, I believe, I trust in Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, and I will follow him. That's good and right that we should do so, 
even as we trust in God's promises to bring it past. But when I, when I was growing up, I knew that I needed to get saved. I knew that there was a heaven, there was a hell, and, and, I, and I knew that I didn't want to go to the latter and I wanted to go to the former. And I needed to be saved because I was a sinner. And so, you know, the emphasis was always on, you know, my soul, your soul needs to be saved. And that's true. That's true. But then the question that was never really, honestly, very, never really addressed in all my years growing up was the question, okay, now so what? So, you, so your soul's been saved. Great. What are you to do? What is this supposed to be? And, and you know, and just the context in which we grew up, there, there just wasn't much emphasis on that talk. And, uh, you know, as I say, you just, you know, you, I don't know, get married, get a job. You know, those are all good and right things, but it was just kind of hang out until the day you die or Jesus comes and raptures us all out. But, you know, the world's going to hell anyway. And so that time between when your soul gets saved and you die or Jesus comes back is just kind of this no man's land. There wasn't any clear purpose for it. Uh, a second quandary that I had, you know, I, I grew up in a context in which, you know, it was broadly evangelical uh, churches. We had gone to a Southern Baptist church and then an evangelical kind of free church. And, um, you know, even, even a Reformed Baptist church for a time uh, before I kind of came into covenantal thinking. But, you know, we, would, we believed the scriptures. We believed, you know, it said the word of God is true. And so we saw these passages in scripture, you know, Paul saying, I do not you know, permit a woman to lead the service of worship, 1 Timothy 2, to be in submission with that. You know, we saw passages that said men are to be heads of their home, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, and so on. We saw these, and they were proof texts, and we said, well, the scripture says it, so okay, we're going to believe that. But there was really never thought or emphasis about the why. Well, why is that? You know, surely, yes, Paul, Peter, 1 Peter 3, says things, that, you know, wives are to follow and submit to their husbands. Husbands are to lead their wives and love them and to be heads in their home. But apart from the fact that we had certain proof texts that we said, okay, well, we don't know why, but there's a text we need to obey it. There was never a theology to explain why that was the case. It was just kind of, kind of like it just came out of thin air uh, by apostolic revelation. Whereas reality, as we're going to see today, is that both our understanding of what we're to be doing and about as redeemed people in the Lord, as well as our understanding of why the covenant household works the way it does, is all rooted in these fundamental creation realities we're going to see today. And that is, therefore, that to which Jesus himself is restoring us and the world as his image bearers and his kingdom. So that informs what we're supposed to be doing. Amen. And I thank God for that. So let's consider, as we just look at these together, I'm just going to, three key points today. Let's first of all consider uh, what I'm going to call the, the, the federal family. Federal, the word just means covenant. It's Latin for uh, foitus. Uh, so think of it, covenant family. The covenant Christian household of faith. And the idea, the first key thing we're going to see here right at the beginning is that uh, in Genesis is that the Lord God when he made man and woman, and he said it was very good that he 
pronounced them and created them into a household. And that pattern of the household, of Adam being the one to whom the covenant was given, of the Lord taking Eve from his side to be a helper suitable to him in the calling, fulfilling the calling to which Adam was called, of be fruitful, multiply, you know, fruit of all sorts, fruits of your labors, the fruit of your body, multiply and fill the earth. That In order to fulfill that calling of, of, of advancing the kingdom of God throughout the whole world, that Adam was created as the head and Eve as a helper, and they were a household, and to expand that household of faith. So Adam was, and here's the P word, but it's important, brethren, that we embrace this and not be ashamed of it. He was a patriarch. Adam was the first patriarch. And the patriarchal household, not the individual, not the church, or even the state, the patriarchal household is the primary unit of dominion in the world. Now, the church, the state, the individual have important roles to play in all this. We don't negate that. But when we think about how God has ordained the world, how He has made the world, He has made His purposes to go forward in household. And our sense of identity, of, of, of who we are, to be in relation to a household. Households of marriages that are created, man and woman, one flesh, as part of the church, which is referred to as the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. Mothers, spiritual mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, part of this household. But household is the fundamental way that we should be thinking about who we are and what our purpose is as redeemed people in the Lord. As I said, Adam was the head. He was the patriarch to whom God's covenant and his command to, for what was called the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, fill the earth. That cultural dominion mandate was given along with the authority and the rule as well as the provisions necessary to fulfill it. Eve was taken from Adam's side, as I said, to be his suitable helper in fulfilling, in, 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 in doing what God called him to do as part of is, is this household is, and as a fellow image bearer of the Lord. Male and female made he them, both bearing the image of God. Adam directly, the woman derivatively, but both bearing it truly as God's image bearers. And that's vitally important that we hold that, uh, that we understand that. And they were to have children and to employ then all of their household resources, which God gave them, and authority to fulfill, to expand, to multiply, to continue in God's covenant with God's blessing on faith and obedience. The mandate was placed on Adam then as head of a God-ordained household and as the first father leader, as patriarch. And that's why then, you know, we can think to your Westminster Shorter Catechism. On the one hand, Westminster Catechism 10 says, how did God create man? Well, God created man male and female after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures, over the creation. But that's also why when we get to Westminster Catechism 16, we say, you know, did all mankind 
perish? Did all mankind fall in Adam's transgression? The answer we're given there is that the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but also for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell in him in his first transgression. Did Eve sin? Yes. She did. She, uh, she ate the forbidden food. She believed the lie. But brethren, the sin and misery and the curse came because Adam, the head, he himself ate. He rebelled. And he, in him, through descending from ordinary generations, his posterity fell in him as the head. And this is vitally important for us to understand that. He had both the privilege and the responsibility for the covenant by God's sovereign ordination. We see then that not only was the patriarchal household God's design for the union of dominion and cultural mandate, but that salvation, the redemption we have in Christ, creates covenant households of faith redeemed and restored in Christ, the second Adam, and taught them to walk in God's ways as disciples of Jesus Christ. God's covenant has always been based, as I said, on patriarchal rule, and it involves God's promises to be God to children and children's children and so forth from generations. Look, first of all, again, right here in the text, the, the promise to Adam. Adam, who the priest... The royal priests, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But Adam, the son of God, the priest in the garden of God, in the very presence of God, the first man and head of the covenant, Adam is in the, in the garden with the Lord, and his call is to propagate the earth with godly seed, to be fruitful, to multiply, to bring up more like him in his image because he bears God's image. Therefore, more priests to conquer in the world in holiness and to go forth and proclaim the name of the living God and His worship throughout the entire earth. God helping as Adam was to walk in obedient faith, to trust in the Lord and obey Him, submit to Him. It doesn't surprise us then if you turn to Genesis 17. Why don't you do that real quick? When we all know that Abraham, after the flood... That God then, after Babel and the nations are divided, God comes and he again brings about a new family, Abraham and his family. And he says, in you all the nations are going to be blessed. Abraham is, as it were, is set up in a very real sense as another Adam, as the head of the race. And of the ones through whom the Lord was going to establish and go forward in his kingdom program by faith. But we see in Genesis 17, verse 7, particularly these words. When the Lord comes and again reestablishes the covenant with Abraham to, to be a God to him, his shield in, verse, in chapter 15. But then in, verse, in chapter 17, the Lord appears to him again when he's 99. says, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between you and multiply you exceedingly. That's right out of Genesis 1. I'm going to multiply you exceedingly, Abraham. Of course, he has no children. Sarah is still barren at this point. And yet the Lord says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. It sounds very much like Genesis 1, doesn't it? 
I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to multiply you, Abraham. Through you, I'm going to fill the world and I'm going to subdue it through your people, through kings and nations that will come up from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after them and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. Verse 7, your descendants after you. And he's going to give them a land. So the idea here, he's saying just like with Adam in the garden, Abraham, be fruitful, multiply, and raise up by faith, by trusting in me to go with you and to help you. Because Abraham was one, think back to Genesis 15, when the Lord first made this promise of seed and of an inheritance like the, like the, sea on the, the sand on the sea and the, and the um, stars in the sky. Abraham, in hope, contrary to hope, as Romans says, he believed. He believed that God was able and willing to do exactly what he promised though it looked impossible. God was able and willing, and he was faithful, therefore he would. And it said that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But brethren, Abraham's faith also was not a dead faith. If you consider, look at uh, chapter 18 of Genesis Look at verse 18 and 19. When the angelic hosts come, remember the angels come and visit he and Sarah right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels come to visit Abraham. And this, these, we hear these words, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, think back to Genesis 1. God blessed them. He said it is good. All the nations will be blessed in Abraham and his seed. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. You see what's going on. Abraham believed God. He believed a promise. Abraham, be fruitful, multiply. I'm going to give you a child, even in your old age. And that promise, just like to Adam, is going to come to fruition in you and your people, your family, nations, rulers, kings, filling, subduing, kingdom of God going forth. Because you believe me, Abraham. Because you have faith, Abraham. You trust me. And one of the sure evidences of that faith and, fruit, faith and fruits of it is that, Abraham, I've done this because you're going to teach your children. Because you have faith, you're going to teach your family to walk in my ways. And I'm going to help you, Abraham, so that you'll raise up a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of obedient, faithful followers of Jesus Christ, the living God, and advance his kingdom. Brethren, that is the gospel. That's the gospel. And that was promised to Abraham back then. And so this idea then that the covenant, God's promises embrace redeeming households, that God will be a God to us and our children and children's children, to those who walk in faith and bear the fruits of obedient faith, God will help them. It doesn't surprise us then when we get to the New Testament and we see the words 
of Peter there in Acts 2. For the promise of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The promise that the, the new covenant promise, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you and your children so that they will no longer walk astray. I'm going to write their law in their hearts. Do you have faith and who seek me? I'm going to help you. Peter's just speaking their very Old Testament gospel-centered language, brethren. The gospel has always been about redeeming people and their households for the fulfilling of God's covenant purpose in the world. We it's not surprising then when we see throughout Acts, Acts 10, Acts 16, we see households being baptized with Cornelius in Acts 10. Cornelius believed and his whole house was baptized. We get to Philippians chapter 16, the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. They're baptized with Lydia in her household, with Crispus in Acts 18, or even the household of Stephanus, of which Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 1, that he baptized the whole household. Brethren, it shouldn't surprise us to see this household baptisms, household covenant thinking, because God's purpose is to redeem the household and to advance his purposes through households. Covenant Christian households are the foundations, then, of culture and of church and civil government. Remember that until the Exodus, until the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, that both ecclesiastical and civil rule, the sphere, were subsumed in patriarchal households, right? Before the Exodus, before the Lord ordained the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, how did they worship? Well, Abraham made altars to the Lord, and he led his family in worshiping the living God. They had family altars, and they, they did it week by week. He was the spiritual head of his home. When Lot and, and, and uh, the men, uh, you know, those in Sodom were carried away by the kings, Keterleomer and whatnot, how did justice come about? Abraham gathered up his posse and all of his household, and they went and brought them back, right? They ex and they executed righteous judgment. The point is, is that later, yes, the Lord divides and he puts the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical, he separates that out. Later, kings and rulers would come from Abraham's household and they would have, that would be divided where the, there would be kings over the people and rulers, elders and so on. But the point is, is that the household was the basis and the foundation from which all those things came. When the Lord sets up Moses later as the prophet and judge and magistrate of the people, and he sets up Aaron and the Levites as priest and shepherd, that all comes out of, as derivative of, the original Abrahamic patriarchal household. That's why then, brethren, positions of leadership, responsibility, privilege, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, whether civil or domestic or ecclesiastical, consistently then follow the same household pattern. This is key. Brethren, why is it? Here's the why. Why is it that God has put men as head over the church? Why, you know, why do we see those verses? Why is it that the consistent pattern we see throughout Scripture is that it is, it is men, masculine, who are called to be elders, 
in the church who are also then serving as magistrates and kings and so on. Why does Isaiah 3.12 say that it's a curse when women are ruling over them and are oppressing them? Why is that? Does God hate women? No. Brethren, it's because God created the world a certain way according to households and that is the basis then for civil government for the church the household is the is the template you make does that make sense that's God's way and the woman and, and, and our sisters are part of, of helping and bringing about God's covenant purposes so brethren my call you know when we consider this then is I just want a simple applications I want to remind you that patriarchy is the natural, it is God-ordained state for the righteous world. It is not something wicked that has been imposed on the world, right? Just because something is natural, though, doesn't always mean it's going to be virtuous. And we need to remember that, too. Good things, God's design, can and was perverted by sin. Unnatural things are always evil because they're contrary to God's design. It is unnatural and unrighteous for, uh, Scripture would say, for, for men to not lead, for women to step in and usurp that. That was part of the curse. Remember that Eve would desire that role, that men would fail and struggle with their calling to subdue the earth. But nevertheless, God's plan was not changed. God's natural way, His order that He made was still good, and when He redeems households and to himself that pattern is restored and when households grow into christian nations confessing counties that household pattern is still stamped on it you see that and that's god's way and it is good god even said in genesis 1 it is very good brethren i want us to be a people that love god's ways that's why when we get then to Ephesians 5, when you see this, Paul talking about Christ in the church. That's why Paul's exhortation is, Husbands, love your wives. Spend and be spent for your wives the way Jesus does the church. Husbands, listen to your wives. Consider what they have to say the way Christ listens to and, and, and considers the prayers of His church. Husbands, Consider and honor your wives, but then wives submit to follow your husbands in the Lord. Brethren, that is exactly how God's good dominion, creation, and purposes go forward. Is when the church of Jesus Christ, when husbands, when marriages and households look like that. And they're restored to God's purposes in doing His work. Secondly, we need to consider the function of all this, faithful function. And again, the key here being faithful. It's always by faith. Brethren, dominion is not something that goes forward except by faith. Just like with Abraham. The call here, you notice in the, what we see in Genesis 1 is to divide, subdue, fill the whole earth, first of all. Verse 28. And this was the goal that God gave for the whole corporate race of man in Adam. Remember that God's pattern that we see in verse 1 to 25 at this point, first of all, is to divide and fill. We see in the first five, six days of creation, what does God do? He speaks and then He divides, separates light from darkness, the firmament above from below, 
the, he separates things out, but then he takes and comes back and fills those things. He fills the firmament with, uh, with the, air, the, the fowl of the air, and he fills the land that he made with beasts and cattle of every kind and with herbs and things and so on, and the seas with fish and all that, right? He divides and then he fills, and that's God's covenant pattern. Men are good at dividing, but we need our sisters to help us to fill, to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill with good things, glorious things, beautiful things, holy things. That's why it's good. The man is, needs, needs help. <laughs> we all know that. It's not good for man to be alone. God's clear pattern, separate, divide, and then fill. And then he also says subdue and fill, rule over the earth. The idea behind the Hebrew word rule there just simply means, again, to reign with a holy priestly power and authority and wisdom. It doesn't refer just to authority, but to authority that's backed up by might, governed by righteousness and wisdom to bring about filling and flourishing. That's what it means to rule over the earth. And he says to subdue it. Literally, this means to vanquish or even, literally, the word you see in other places in the Hebrew many times means to vanquish or even to keep down by force. Now, again, you need to remember, brethren, that the earth outside of the garden at this point was not yet cursed. It wasn't rebellious, right? It was unshaped. It was wild. It wasn't a beautiful and productive garden throughout the rest of the earth, even though it wasn't overgrown with weeds and it wasn't under the curse. God had already filled the world with other life in the previous days of creation, but here we are told that it's very clear that the world was not yet subdued, right? It wasn't subdued. And that in order to subdue it, mankind would need to continue this process that God began of dividing and then filling with good things. They will need to fill it with themselves as God's image bearers so that God's process, His ordering, and His, his good uh, order would be extended into the forest and the deserts and the plains, the tundra throughout the whole world, right? A God who is not a God of confusion or disorder, but a God of order, beauty, and glory said to Adam and Eve, your call is going to be to take and bring the rest of the created earth that I have made and to gardenify it. Make it beautiful, make it glorious, fill it with good things. Adam was created to carry on God's very good work. I read something from Michael Foster this week, and he said, God's rule is always wise, it's loving and it's righteous. Genesis does not imply that the world was in need of taming and subjugating and conquering yet, but it does imply in Genesis 1.28... You might even paraphrase it this way to say that the call was for Adam and Eve to harness its potential, use its resources for your households and for others' benefit and their blessing, for their flourishing. And we see in this text that the rule over the earth included everything that lives. Look what it says. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every living thing that moves on the earth. So this was all animal life and the sky, the land and the sea. So you can think of the call... So Adam, use oxen, learn to plow, use sheep for wool, 
Maybe later on, I mean, we're going to see after the flood and that God gives them animals also for food. But the point is, Adam, take the animals that I have made and learn to use them to bring productivity and flourishing and beauty to the world I've made. Right? Harness them. We see it, all plant life was given to them. Verse 29 and 30. So plants and herbs for food, for them and the animals, but also for medicines, for medicinal purposes. You know, maybe even things like to develop, you know, fertilizer to get better crop yields, right? All of this would have been part of the call. It also included the inanimate material resources of the earth itself, right? Minerals, elements. So think, this is the beginning, for example, of a call, uh, chemistry, metallurgy, right? And all these things, this would have all been part of that dominion covenant mandate, fill Use the resources I've given you, Adam and Eve. Develop holy family to exercise dominion and fill the earth, subdue it. Use all these resources to beautify and make it productive and flourishing in a good way. The Lord, we're not going to talk about this today, but he also gave them a Sabbath rest. That'll be another sermon for another time, but in chapter 2, 1 to 3, he gives... He gives them a Sabbath, and he says, here's the way it's going to work. You're going to have my Sabbath, and that's going to be a day that you're going to rest from your works like I have, and I'm going to sanctify it. You're going to come into my garden, into my holy place, to my garden throne, and you're going to eat and walk with me afresh in my presence, and I'm going to evaluate the things that you have done in your works in my name, and I'm going to bless them every Sabbath. What a glorious thing. It is, they had. But they were not only called to divide and subdue, but look down at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord, before he sends them out to conquer the world and to subdue it, he gives them a school, the school of God, the school of Christ in a garden. Chapter 2, verse 15 says that the Lord God actually planted a garden east of Eden, and he placed the man and the woman there to learn, as it were, to learn the principles and to practice the principles that they were going to need to then go out and fulfill Genesis 1.28. Look what it says in, in Genesis 2.15. It says specifically there that the Lord God planted that garden, and the call for them specifically was that they would tend to it and that they would keep it. What does that mean? You know, if they're in the school of God and they're learning their, their basic principles of Dominion 101... Tend to it and keep it, he says. He put them there for that purpose. The word tend, some translations render that word work. The Hebrew word behind that, just depending on its context, can actually have kind of a threefold related meaning. The first is to work. The most common is the word avad has the idea of work. You know, so think, for example, the call was, I'm going to put you in the garden and you're going to till the ground. You're going to plant you're going to work the land and till it and, and, and cause it to bear good fruit and beautify it and arrange it. But the word avad also has the idea of serve, specifically when used in relation to a person, like to be a servant of somebody. You work for them. So there's a working of the ground, but it also has the idea of working for somebody else's blessing. And it also instantly shows up a lot of places in the Old Testament in our English translation and is translated worship. You say, well, what's that got to do with it? Brethren, the idea is that in those contexts, to work, to serve God, 
which is your holy calling, right? And when you put all these things together, what you see is that the idea was that as Adam worked and Eve worked the ground, they were simultaneously serving the Lord and worshiping God, their creator. To work was to serve, was to worship. Work was service, which was worship. Before the fall, creating, making, working, and praising, prizing God were all one and the same. So brethren, this has massive implications for us, doesn't it? That your work is good. Work is to be worshipped. Think Colossians 3, you know, that we are to do your work heartily as unto the Lord, not as men pleasers, you know, not with eye service, but as unto the Lord, knowing that it is the Lord who has called us to it and that he himself will reward us. Brethren, what this does is this sanctifies our work as worship. Do you see your work as worship, sisters in the home? There are days I I might feel more like that, but my kids are struggling and I got diapers and messy things and going on and chaos. That doesn't feel much like worship, I'll grant. Brethren and sisters, it is a holy, a noble work, a work of, of worship to the living God, which you do. You are extending, you're trusting in faith, saying, Lord, I am helping to extend your kingdom to raise up godly seed, godly children in our household to bring the flourishing in our household, and I am working together as part of your purpose, and this is my act of worship to you. Sisters, I want to exhort you to think of it that way and ask God to help you in it, to serve and worship. And brothers, your labors in your household or maybe, you know, where the Lord's got you calling, calling right now in other vocation. Do you see that as worship? Do you see that as your means to glorify God and enjoy Him in the thing to which He's called you and in the labors to which He has set your hand? Do you see the place you work as a place of ministry and that you are anointed and equipped for ministry in the place which He has put you? You are His holy royal priest, there to be his light and to show the goodness, the greatness, the glory, the beauty, sufficiency of Christ where he's put you and to delight in the work to which he's called you. There's a wonderful thing, brethren, when you see somebody, whether male or female, who is doing their work heartily as unto the Lord, whatever it is, because they love God. It just, it changes the way they do their work. You know people like this? I have known people that just delight in their work, whatever it is, not so much the work, and maybe it's still sweating, maybe it's toilsome, but it's because God is in this, and he's helping me. May he get glory in it. They were told to keep and guard the garden. Second word there. It has the idea, again, of exercising great care over, beautifying, preserving, and protecting for prosperity. So again, just think of the implications of that. We're to keep the gardens that the Lord has entrusted to us. Brethren, each one of you, each one of our households, the Lord has assigned to you, as it were, your own garden, your sphere of influence, your children, the property to which he's entrusted you, the work that he's given you to do. And he said, my call to you is to tend it, to keep it, make it flourish, spiritually as well as productivity in every way and trust me seek me pray to me i will help you do it when you walk in faith like abraham 
I'm, I'm going to give you grace upon grace to do this and to fulfill the calling. As Adams and Eves, the call for us is to tend our garden in our sphere of influence, material and spiritual, in faith for fruitfulness, to bring much fruit. Remember again Jesus' words, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. What was the call on Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, subdue, fill. Jesus is just speaking creation language again when he says that God is glorified when you bear much fruit, when you fill, subdue, and you see your households grow and and influence and expand for good and blessing to yourselves and others. God is glorified in that. So seek to grow your garden, both deep and wide, for greater fruitfulness for God and for joy for you and others. Brethren, God gets glory in that. He does. God is in that. It is your service of worship to Him, and He is pleased in it. You go home, and I remember that. We planted a big garden out on our property this year, and the Lord has blessed us. It's born a lot. But whether, you know, whether it be a literal garden or, you know, working the soil of my children's hearts or my hearts or things we're seeking to build or do, whatever it is, my call, our call is, Lord, would you make it fruitful? Would your blessing be upon it for good? Because we want you to be glorified and we want to be a means of extending your goodness to the world that they would see and savor the living God through us. I need wisdom to tend to the garden the Lord has called to me. And I need wisdom to protect it. Simultaneously to protect it from evil, from those that would seek to do it harm, that would seek to enter and corrupt it, on the one hand. But at the same time also, I need the grace to tend to it and work it and make it fruitful. Sometimes, brethren, those are challenging things to hold in balance, aren't they? Lord, I I want... Brethren, only by the grace of God can we simultaneously well preserve and defend, protect with His angelic host helping us the things He's entrusted to us from evil of the world while also seeing those things become fruitful means of blessing the world. We all know that there's a a felt tension there. But brethren, the Lord is great. He is good. He is willing to help us. He is willing to help you and I who are restored in His image to be faithful Adams and Eves under Christ and to take up the call. And the results of all this, just in conclusion, look at that third point. Fruitful flourishing. It's productivity, it's culture, it's truth, beauty, and goodness going forth. God's blessing, remember there in Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and he said it was good. And then he saw the household that he had made and the call he gave to Adam and Eve, and he said, it is very good. It is very good the way that I have made the world and the call I've put on them. Brethren, this blessing that God gives upon his people when they walk in faith, when they do what he's called us to do, is a blessing of his prosperity, of his hand on us for good, and that he will make our labors fruitful. And he will help us to bring our fruits to his house each Sabbath to glorify him and to build up his kingdom. We offer him the fruits of our sacrifices of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 talks about this is the Lord is pleased that we offer to him the fruits of our lips. Brethren, are we offering in our homes day by day the fruit to the Lord of the sacrifice of our praise? 
That's one area of fruit I want every day in every household here, my yearning. We would day by day praise the living God from our heart. He is pleased. That is a fruit that pleases Him. We offer Him our prayers and we offer Him our entire lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, your work, your glory and way of serving God. It is fruit to the Lord. But also... Offer to the Lord the fruits of your labors, of your productivity, of your service. Think of the tithe. You know, when we come into the Lord's house, what is the tithe but offering to the Lord a token of the fruits of what he's given you, right? It's saying, Lord, it's like the first fruits of the harvest. You remember the Feast of First Fruits? They would take that first cutting and offer it to the Lord as a portion of the whole. Saying, Lord, I'm offering you this first fruits because you are the one who gives all good things and I'm asking you to bless my labors and make them fruitful, multiply, prosper them. We offer him the fruits and we work the soil of our children that they would be disciples of the Lord and love him and that they would continue his covenant and his kingdom going forward. We offer him the fruits of, of, of our goods and our productivity in our households for supporting the work of ministry, for doing ministry, for blessing others, saints, neighbors, sinners alike in his name. Brethren, when we use the fruits of our productivity and the things the Lord has entrusted to us as stewards, we use those to bless others, saints and sinners alike. God is well pleased. That is fruit. He gets glory in that. And it has his blessing on it. And he says, good very good this is what i redeemed you for to carry the light to build my kingdom to do my work because you're walking in faith like abraham you're showing yourself to be true children daughters and sons of abraham who hold fast to christ and so when that happens the result is simply this and this is where our eschatology comes in brethren we don't see it yet fully we see Jesus, Hebrews says. We see him who has gone before us. We see us who are in him, children whom the Lord has given to him. But brethren, in Christ who is ruling and reigning now, that next Adam, brethren, we have a sure hope. Your labor is not in vain. Brethren, it's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, brethren, let it be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord. That's fruitful and multiply, right? In the work of the Lord, in your service to the Lord. Why? Knowing that your labor is not in vain. God will help you. He will make you fruitful. He will help you to subdue. I assure you, brethren, you and I don't have the capacity in ourselves to do this. <laughs> the task is too big. But our God is with us. We will walk with Him. We will abide in Him. We will draw near to him. We will come week by week to his Sabbath. We will come to his throne. He'll eat daily of the tree of life. And brethren, he will help us and he will subdue things before us. He will turn the garden into the garden city that Revelation talks about. A glorious, beautified, glorious new Jerusalem. And he will take the earth, though unsubdued, the land around us, and he will turn it into fruit-bearing nations that bring their offerings into the house of the Lord, like Revelation 21 and 22 talk about. Brethren, that's our future. 
So don't grow weary in well-doing now. As you have opportunity, whether to saints and to sinners alike, for the glory of God, let us ask Him, God, would you make us fruitful? Would you multiply us? Would you help us to subdue what is not subdued? Would you help us to fill what is not yet filled? God, would you make us faithful Adams and Eves in our households and our children under Christ? Brethren, the Lord our God will help us. He will help us when we walk in faith. Let's pray. Father, our Lord Jesus came to restore us, not just to save our souls, but to save nations, to save the world through his church, which is the fullness of Jesus, the head who is, fills all in all. Our Lord Jesus came to redeem households, to redeem us and to put us into the households, marriages, to put us into the household of faith, the church, but it's all about fulfilling your purpose, which has not changed, which is to fill the earth and subdue it, to bring the glory of God to bear and to reign and to rule over the entire created order. Father, we believe that all the kingdoms of the world have been promised to our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall have them. Father, we believe that we have been restored to rule and to reign with Christ, not only in eternity, but in the present that we who are in Christ rule and reign with him. We overcome, we subdue, we fill by faith. Father, give us the kind of faith that we read about in Hebrews 11, of those who looked for a city whose builder and maker is God, like Abraham, who dwelt maybe with less and with some scarcity, but with always building and working, laboring for the future because they saw that it was not in vain to serve the living God. Father, give us such a holy zeal and ardor for your kingdom that we truly will be able to say and say of us that we seek first your kingdom, your righteousness in our households with the sure promise that in Jesus you will give us all things that we need. Father, help us, we pray, to have faith and so to conquer and to go forth in Jesus' name. Amen.